As a Bible expositor, I must say I'm a bit out of my element this morning because I'm not going to do an exposition of a single text. We're going to use some selected passages this morning, given the occasion, given the fact that we're launching Operation Children's Hope. And so I'll be speaking to you about the topic of principles of child evangelism, a very, very important topic that people ask me about from time to time. But we will use as a launching pad Ephesians chapter six, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter six. And while you're turning there, I would like to capture your thoughts for a moment. Senator Hillary Clinton has popularized an old African saying. It goes like this. It takes a village to raise a child. In fact, she has written a book with that very title. And unfortunately, many undiscerning people agree with that statement. And in reality, if you read her book and understand that principle, you will see that what is being promoted is, frankly, the state raising your children. She, along with many others, believe that the federal government would share in the rights and responsibilities of child rearing and basically have state sponsored parenting. And as a socialist, she, along with many others, envision an America where the government indoctrinates children with the values of secular humanism in state-sponsored daycares and preschools that the government would fund. That would be also kind of the the prelude to what is happening in our already existing state-sponsored public schools. And sadly, organizations like the ACLU and the National Education um, Association empowered by Liberal politicians and activist judges are aggressively achieving this goal. Now, as Christians, we understand that this is merely the progressive disintegration of sin that is inevitable in our fallen world. And it is going to increase before the Lord returns. But we also understand that God says something very different about what it takes to raise a family. It doesn't take a village, it takes a mother and a father, especially a mother and a father that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents who are obedient to the text we have before us here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And here the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, And fathers, which, by the way, can be translated parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to elaborate on the last part of this verse for a moment and use it as a springboard into what I want to share with you this morning with respect to principles of child evangelism. First of all, you will you notice the term discipline? He says we are to bring them up in the discipline. Paideia in the original language, it is a Greek term that refers to the systematic training or even the chastening of a child. It's the idea of correcting a child's foolish thinking and behavior in a way that is organized. A way that is regular, methodical, and logical. One Greek scholar puts it this way, and I quote, Correcting the transgression of the laws and ordinances of the Christian household. Now, indeed, Scripture is filled with admonitions to this regard. We read, for example, in Proverbs 13, 24, that he who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And likewise, in Proverbs 22, 6, we read, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we are to bring them up in the discipline, but also the instruction. 
Nuthesia in the original language, it literally has the idea of putting in mind, but it also refers to, therefore, the concept of admonishing, warning, instructing. It has more the emphasis of of training by word, the idea of instilling a biblical worldview through teaching and encouragement as well as reproof. Now, of course, the ultimate goal of all of this is to lead our children to repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents spend enormous time and money educating their children and on sports and on music lessons and teaching them to be moral citizens and all things that that are good and and appropriate, trying to help them be successful adults. But we know biblically that the ultimate goal of parenting is far beyond all of that. After all, as the scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Our children's greatest need is to be born again. We hear much about child abuse today, and it's a tragic, tragic reality in our culture. But, dear friends, I would submit to you that the greatest form of child abuse is the failure for parents to raise their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Most Christian parents understand this, but knowing how to effectively evangelize their children sometimes becomes confusing and often misunderstood. So I want to take a little bit of time this morning to address that. In fact, on a at least a monthly basis, somebody even in this church or sometimes in our listening audience in the uh, over the Internet will ask questions like, my child wants to be saved, but I think he or she is too young to understand. What should I do? Or is there an age of accountability? Should I look for some specific age or what can we do as parents to raise the probability that our children will come to a saving knowledge of Christ or others will ask, how should we present the gospel to our kids when they don't understand many of the biblical concepts? And one that is very popular is this one. Our child said he asked Jesus into his heart in Sunday school. What should we say? We don't know if it's genuine because we don't know if they really understand. Well, dear friends, don't panic. God has not left us in the dark. I want you to remember, first of all, this morning, the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. Remember the, the, the seed and the sower? And you not you don't need to turn there. We won't take time to do that. But it's a marvelous passage that really describes four conditions of men's hearts with respect to receiving the gospel. And that particular text provides for us great insight into not only evangelism, but also the nature of genuine saving faith. And he used there an analogy that of the sower. And we've all seen that where a sower will take, in the, especially in the olden days, they would, and even sometimes to this day, we will take a bag and it will be filled with seed and we will reach in and we will throw the seed. And it's impossible to know for sure where that seed will fall. But according to verse 37 of Matthew 13, we read that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, referring to Christ, and the seed is the word of God. And that's very important. To begin with, as we think about evangelizing our children, I want you to also recall that he went on to describe four kinds of hearts that he encountered in evangelism and we will encounter in evangelism. There is, first of all, what I call the impervious heart. It was the one you will recall where the seed was sown on the rock hard soil beside the road and all of that symbolized the issue of human deception and the granite indifference that comes from that. And we've all experienced that with people that we know who have heard the gospel. And it's, it's just no way that the seed's going to penetrate that impervious heart. But there's also, secondly, an indifferent heart. Remember the seed that fell among the thorns? And it was choked out by the thorns and the thorns symbolized worldliness. So the gospel seed would fall upon the heart of a would-be, maybe professing believer, but it's choked out 
He mentions four things, the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of this life and the desires or the lusts for other things. But then there was a third kind of heart, which I call the impressionable heart. This is the heart where the seed would be sowed on the shallow topsoil of that region of the world. A layer of limestone would be immediately underneath that very shallow topsoil layer. And this would be the type of place where a seed would fall and it would germinate very quickly. It's like the gospel would come upon this very impressionable heart. It would immediately spring up with great enthusiasm, but it would also quickly die because it would never be able to take root. It's symbolic of a shallow conversion, one that is driven by emotion, not genuine conviction. Now, dear friends, this is where most of our children begin. And we have to be very careful. We desire them to have the fourth kind of heart. And by God's grace, they will. And that is the impoverished heart, the one that is needy, the one that is broken and humble and depleted. The Lord calls this the good soil. And there he says, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And the Lord described this type of a person in Matthew 5. You will recall this is the one uh, who are blessed because they are poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the type of individual that will mourn over their sinful condition. They are gentle. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart and so on. Now, the, the question we endeavor to answer this morning is simply this. What would God have me do as a parent to be his instrument of righteousness in the salvation of my child? And I want to answer that with three very simple statements that I'll elaborate on over the next few minutes. We want to, first of all, prepare the soil. Secondly, sow the seed. And finally, trust God for the harvest. Well, let me explain what I mean by preparing the soil. We all have seen in our area here in Tennessee farmers that plant their seeds. But before they plant their seeds, what do they do? They prepare their soil for the crop. They clear it of weeds and rocks and stumps and they drain the water and all of these types of things and do all they can for that soil to prepare to be prepared to receive the seed. And dear friends, I would submit to you that we have to do the same thing as parents. We have to prepare the soil of their hearts, of our children's hearts, by our godly example and instruction. Now, we see this borne out in many passages of Scripture, but no more clearly than in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so I would encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here we see God's commandment to His covenant people in the Old Testament Notice beginning in verse four, his command to love the Lord. He says here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one and you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then, as we see here, we are to be the type of people that have as a priority our understanding of the word of God and our obedience to the word of God in every area of our life, combined with the priority of teaching these principles to our children, meditating upon them continually. And then notice in verse uh, 17, 
He goes on to say, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Now, notice something very fascinating, beginning in verse 20. He says, when your son asks you, he doesn't say if he says when there's an element of inevitability here. When your son asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and then he goes on to describe the character of God, his faithfulness, his love, his righteousness, and so on. Now, parents, grandparents, all of you that know and love children and interact with them, please hear this. Here is the principle that emerges from this text. It's simply this. Your godly lifestyle combined with your consistent teaching and discussing of the word of God will inevitably arouse spiritual curiosity in your child. That's where you begin to prepare the soil. Your wisdom and priorities will ultimately challenge theirs. Now, if your child watches you and oh, how they watch you, we all know that. If they see in your life no emphasis on obedience to the word of God, no real love for Christ, an obsession with the world, an obsession with material things, no priority of prayer. There's no teaching of the word. There's no uh, priority to come and to worship and to serve and those types of things. The same will be true, most likely, for your children. Now, practically, let me give you a couple of examples where you might want to begin to look. Your godly example must include a godly marriage. This is absolutely essential. I mean, think about it. In marriage, we have God's picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And we want our children to see that lived out before their lives. We see that, for example, in Ephesians 5. And marital conflict will produce enormous problems in children later on. So you want to ask yourself, does my marriage really picture God's love for the church? Does it picture submission to his headship? Does it reflect the transforming power of the gospel of Christ that I want to preach to my child? And if the answer is no, you need to begin there as you prepare the soil of your child's heart. A godly example will also include proper discipline of your children. I want you to understand this is also very important. Undisciplined children will be much harder to reach because they have ultimately been taught that they do not have to respect or submit to authority. But they can kind of do whatever they want to do and get away with it. Child-centered homes are unbearable to be around, if you've ever been around one. You know, it's the type of home where everything orbits around little Johnny, Johnny's demand. These are children that will be defiant. They will actually, and I've seen this happen, they will actually look at their parent and say, no, and live to say it again. You know, it's amazing to me. Um, they whine and they pout, they're spoiled, they throw tantrums and totally disregard the parents' commands and, and, and authority. And you want to ask yourself, is this my home? Is this my child? And if the answer is yes, you need to do some work there with the soil. Lou Priolo has written a book entitled The Heart of Anger. And in it, he has listed some of the indiscretions a child is permitted to commit in a child-centered home. Let me read them to you. And you want to ask yourself, does this describe my home? And if it does, again, you have work to do, my dear friends. In a child-centered home, you will find a child, and I quote, who interrupts adults when they are talking, uses manipulation and rebellion to get their own way, dictates the family schedule, including mealtimes, bedtimes, etc., they're allowed to take precedence over the needs of the spouse. They have an equal or overriding vote in all decision-making matters. They demand excessive time and attention from parents to the detriment of the other biblical responsibilities of the parents. They're allowed to escape the consequences of their sinful and irresponsible behavior. 
They're allowed to speak to parents as though they were peers. They're allowed to be the dominant influence in the home. And they're allowed to be entertained and coddled rather than disciplined out of a bad mood. End quote. Now, there are others that you could add, but I think you get the idea. I hear moms say from some time from time to time about their child. Well, little Johnny just doesn't want to do that or he won't do that. And I think, my, how embarrassing, because what you have just said is that the child is in control here. He is in child in charge, not the parent. And beloved, I want to say this um, very humbly, but very forthrightly. And there's probably a number of sermons that could flow from this. But please understand that parenting is not a democracy. It is a totalitarian rule by a loving and benevolent and wise authority. And if you have something else going on in your home other than that, then the soil needs some preparation for the gospel seed. Remember the word of God tells us in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Foolishness is the idea of a child whose heart is completely bound up with ignorance and emotion and self-centered lust of the flesh. And that's why in Proverbs we read that a child left unto himself will bring his mother to shame. And what a tragic reality that is. So if this is your child, here's where you start preparing the soil. Well, there's those are a few examples that perhaps will help you understand the importance here. So we begin here in understanding the principles of child evangelism by preparing the soil with your godly example and instruction. And then secondly, we need to sow the seed. Now, let me talk to you for a moment about the gospel seed. I want you to remember what the Word of God says. The Word tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Remember Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, it is paramount for us to understand that we must spread the same seed, use the same seed that Jesus used, not create some hybrid seed that we think is going to have better results. And usually practically what this means is we dumb down the gospel to a point where it doesn't even resemble what the gospel is in the scriptures, or we distort it in ways that somehow appeals to man's felt needs, kind of the purpose driven life type of of thinking where we create uh, a wide gate where everybody can kind of go in. And if you come to Christ, you're all going to be successful and all of this type of thing. I want to take you back for a moment in your thinking to the Lord's parable. Remember, the sower sows the seed of the gospel, and it is a seed that has been created by God. And even like physical seeds, and we've all been planting our gardens here of late, those seeds have been designed by the creator. We cannot recreate them. We cannot even replicate them. And so here's the lesson I want you to hear, parents. And anybody evangelizing anyone, don't alter the seed. It's so ridiculous to try to invent some hybrid gospel that you think is going to penetrate any soil and grow in any soil and bear fruit in any soil. So we want to spread the very same seed that Jesus did. Because, dear friends, there's nothing wrong with the seed. You must understand this. There's nothing wrong with the seed. And I also want to point out, if you think back on that parable, there's nothing wrong with the sower. There was no need to reinvent some special method of sowing the seed that the Lord elaborated upon. That would be a method that would guarantee for that seed to find the right place and germinate. See, the problem, again, is not the seed, nor is it the sower. It is the soil, the soil of the human heart that must receive the gospel seed. And we must remember that we have no power to get that seed to find permanent lodging in a heart. That's the work of the Spirit of God. What we do is sow the seed in all of its purity, in all of its clarity, 
and trust God for the increase. Trust him to cause it to germinate. When we sow the gospel, we can therefore rejoice again, knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation, not some fancy way we sowed it. Okay, I think of the Lord's words in Mark 426. There we read the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows. And then it says how he himself does not know. Because it's the work of the spirit. And parents, here's the good news. Again, it is the power of God, not the power of man that produces salvation, that produces salvation from the gospel seed. And it is his power that not man's power that preserves the tender shoots that begin to rise forth from the soil of a child's soul. First Peter one, beginning in verse 23, we read, we have been born again. I catch this not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. And then he gives a wonderful analogy here. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but. The word of the Lord abides forever. Now, in child evangelism, there is a tendency to make two crucial errors, at least two that I'm going to speak about today, because I think these are the most dominant ones. The first one is, as I mentioned earlier, to dumb down the essentials of the gospel, to oversimplify the message to a point where it no longer bears any resemblance to the truth. To eviscerate everything within the gospel message that we think the child cannot understand so that ultimately we can push for a decision. And that is the second error that we see from time to time, getting in a hurry to push for a decision. And both of those tend to go hand in hand. Sometimes the dumbing down of the essentials of the gospel will sound like this. Sweetheart. Jesus loves you so much that if you will ask him into your heart, he will take you to heaven and you won't go to hell. Well, there's profound truth there. But there's much more that needs to be understood because, dear friends, that is not the gospel seed. There's no understanding here of God's holiness. There's no understanding of his law that's been violated. There's no understanding of the penalty of sin, the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, a need for for repentance and 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 faith and belief and so on that I'll address more in a moment. And so many times we also then get in a hurry to push for a decision. Push them to repeat some canned sinner's prayer. You've all heard that before. And, you know, what child wouldn't repeat some of these prayers, you know, you get a group of children together and you say, how many of you love Jesus and want to get go to heaven and don't want to go to hell where the devil is? Raise your hand. And well, every one of them is going to raise their hand. And then you can say, well, then repeat this prayer and you give them some canned prayer. Well, all those little children are going to say that. And, you know, that's so dangerous because, again, the elements of the gospel seed are not there. We also want to be on guard for what I call copycat conversions. You see this a lot with kids. I've addressed this with some of you parents here where a child, because of peer pressure, decides that they, too, need to get saved and they, too, need to get baptized. And we know that many evangelists use this kind of methodology. They kind of prime the pump, if you will, by getting people to go forward or do certain things. And beloved, again, with respect to the tremendous danger of self-deception that the Lord elaborates on in the New Testament, especially in Matthew 7, where people think they are saved, but they are not. We must be so careful against doing anything that would resemble pushing a child or pushing anyone to somehow just make some decision or make some profession without any understanding of the truth. In fact, phony conversions are well documented in circles where people are asked to respond to emotionally charged invitations. And we know that the vast majority eventually apostatize completely. This is well documented. 
In fact, it is necessary in many of these circles for them to record what they call, quote, second time decisions. How tragic. Now, that is not to say that there aren't those who are truly converted, but many in those types of scenarios become mere professors, not possessors of Christ. And ultimately, my concern here biblically is that it puts a person in a worse condition than they were the first time they heard the gospel, because now they're convinced that they belong to Christ when, in fact, they don't. John MacArthur has said, and I quote, if a person's profession of Christ does not involve a deep conviction of sin, a genuine sense of lostness, a strong desire for the Lord to cleanse and purify, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness and a love of his word, along with a genuine willingness to suffer for his sake, there is no root to his spiritual life and it will be only a matter of time before his religious house falls, end quote. So, parents, remember, take time to prepare the soil. Relax, slow down, do it right. And obviously, from the passage that we've looked at here in Deuteronomy, we can see the importance of thorough, patient, systematic teaching. If you're going to do anything, parents, err on the side of being too detailed versus too superficial. Now, where do I begin? With respect to sowing the seed. So much can be said here. So little time. Let me give you a few ideas. By the way, one of the things I encourage you to do is get a good, and I emphasize the word good, Bible storybook with good age-appropriate pictures. And there's some that I would recommend to you if you want to talk to me at the close of the service. There's others that I wouldn't recommend. But you want to use things that will grab the attention of your child at their appropriate age. And let me encourage you then to begin, how about at the beginning? How about beginning with God is creator? Teach them that God is the creator. Take them to the garden story. Tell them that man couldn't hide from God, that man wasn't able to save himself, that he needed to be saved from his own sin, and that required a substitute. And therefore, an innocent animal had to die. There had to be the shedding of blood that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, mind you, I'm covering this very rapidly, but these are the general principles. Teach these things to your children that God had a plan to forgive those who will repent, those who will confess their sins and use the biblical terms, confess, repent, and then you can explain them. And he also has a plan for those who refuse to do that. Remember the key here in Ephesians 6. Remember, we have studied that we need to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And this is going to include emphasizing the most crucial doctrines of the gospel when we teach our children. This is sowing the seed of the gospel. Now, I want to give you a little list here with very little elaboration, and I'm going to use an acrostic, G-M-J-S-I, G-M-J-S-I, and think of the little phrase, God made Jesus Savior indeed. Can you remember that? God made Jesus Savior indeed. And this is going to stand for five areas that you can keep in mind when you sow the seed of the gospel over the course of time with your children. And the G is going to stand for God. The M is going to stand for man. The J for Jesus. The S for salvation. And the I for invitation. G-M-J-S-I. God made Jesus Savior indeed. By the way, that's how I can remember things. Maybe that helps you. Maybe it doesn't. If you have another method, that's fine. But here's what I'm saying. With respect to the most crucial doctrines of the gospel that we must Teach our children, first of all, teach them about God, teach them that he is the creator and that he rules over all of his creation. In other words, it's not mother nature, it's God. Teach them that God is holy. Explain what that means. Teach him, teach your child that he hates sin. Teach him that his law requires perfect obedience Perfect holiness. 
And that leads you into talking to them about man, about themselves. Teach them here that we all violate God's law, that we're all sinners. Teach them that all sin must be punished, that all sin makes us worthy of not only death, but judgment. Teach them that they have a sin nature, a sin nature that they cannot change. And teach them that they, as a sinner, are utterly helpless to do anything about their situation. Bring them to a point where they understand their guilt and their helplessness. And as a footnote here, dear friends, kids need to understand that they are guilty before a holy God. They need to understand that. They need to have a deep conviction about their sin and their lostness and their helplessness. And although this will be much more limited than in adults with a child, uh, it will nevertheless be there. I mean, after all, with, with adults, we have quite a history to look back and say, boy, am I a sinner? You know, children won't have that as much, but they will have some. And children need to experience the fear of divine wrath. You may say, well, that, th- that sounds cruel. No, not at all. What is cruel is to not teach them these essential truths. Otherwise, they will never understand their need to be saved. How can you tell a child that you need to be saved if they don't realize they're lost? And then teach them about Jesus. Here's the J. You've explained to them about God and his holiness. You've explained about man and his sinfulness and his need for something that he cannot do on his own. And here's where you bring them to Jesus. Tell them about Jesus, that he is God's son. Teach them that he is eternally God and Lord of all. Teach them that he came to live a perfect life and become a sacrifice for our sins. Teach them that he came and he shed his blood and therefore paid the penalty of our sins. Teach them that his death on the cross provides a way for us to be forgiven Teach them that Jesus was buried, but rose from the dead. And therefore, he triumphed over sin. He triumphed over Satan. And he triumphed over death. Teach them that his resurrection guarantees the same for all who will trust in him as Savior. Begin to teach them about his righteousness that is given to us, that is imputed to us, to all who will trust him. And teach them that he freely justifies all who repent. Use the word justification. Yes, they won't fully understand it. In time, they will. Begin to explain it to them. Teach them that he freely justifies all who repent of their sins and ask him to save them. And now we talk about salvation. Here's the S. What does salvation require? Well, certainly we can tell them that ultimately it's all of grace But it does require at some level a brokenness over sin. Teach your child what being broken over sin is all about. It requires repentance from sin. It requires a turning your heart from all that displeases God. Teach them that salvation requires that we must deny ourselves. We must renounce ourselves and follow Jesus, though it may cost us our life. Teach them about sacrifice and commitment. Teach them that trusting Jesus alone as Savior and Lord is the only way to be saved. There are no other ways. There are no other gods. And then finally, the I. When they have been taught these things, and even in the context of teaching them these things, give them an invitation Challenge them to examine their heart. Dear friends, describe to your children the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. Urge them to come to Christ in repentant faith. Not manipulating them with emotional tactics, trying to coerce them into some phony profession, but rather communicate to them the profound importance of trusting Christ as their Savior. Now, I know some will say, oh, come on, they can't understand all of this. Well, of course not. Not at first. You know what? I'm still understanding a lot of it. Aren't you? Those of you who know and love Christ. 
but they will understand the essentials. They have to understand the essentials in order to make a genuine profession of Christ. They must understand that God is holy, that they are a sinner, that they are in need of forgiveness and that they must come to him and trust him to save them and obey him. In fact, children can understand the principle of obedience and punishment, I believe, better than most adults who have lived in rebellion for years and think they have gotten away with it. Children understand obedience and punishment. And over time, the Holy Spirit, by his power, will gradually add spiritual flesh on and muscle on the bones of their basic understanding. Now, many times children will make a profession of faith and the parent will seriously doubt that it is genuine. And that's appropriate. And sometimes parents will say, well, what should I do? Well, be careful. First of all, don't immediately accept it as genuine, full-fledged saving faith. But by the same token, don't dismiss it either. You want to be very careful with this. Praise them for wanting to honor God. Encourage them to continue learning more about him, learning more about themselves. I've had this happen before, even with some of my my children and my grandchildren. And I hear these things. and I think, oh, isn't that great? You're beginning to understand these things. Let's talk more about it. That's what you want to do. Their initial professions can be seen as a seed of faith that will eventually germinate and mature and bear much fruit. This is true of all of us. Now, whenever a child professes Christ, you need to look for the signs that would validate the genuineness of that profession of their conversion. Look for real tenderness towards spiritual things. Look toward look for a sensitivity to sin, their own sin and sin in general. In fact, many times you will find the spirit of God working in that child. And even before they are converted, you will see these sensitivities developing. Look for a desire to follow Christ. If they claim that they are born again, look for these things. Look for a love to pray, a love for his word, a hunger to grow spiritually, to learn more about God, a love for others, a passion to know and do the will of God and so on. And all of this will increase as they mature. Now. Upon initial professions, too often I fear that many parents try to immediately assure their child, oh, you're saved, but honey, be very, very careful now. The devil is going to try to convince you that you're not. And you don't want to listen to him. Well, my advice to you is radically different. The reason that child might be doubting their salvation is because indeed they are not saved. And the Spirit of God is bringing conviction to their heart. Maybe that is the reason. I want you to remember something, if I can digress for just a moment. I want you to remember, dear friends, that it is, first of all, the role of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Scripture is very clear about that. John 16, 8. And secondly, we know that it is God's word that produces spiritual life, as we've learned here, for example, First Peter one twenty three. But also, and I want you to hear this, it is not your role, but it is the role of the Holy Spirit to give assurance of salvation to those who believe. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, the Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul and says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. As parents, we should praise our children whenever we see we see evidence of genuine saving faith, but not before. When we see the evidence, we praise them, but not before. Beloved, genuine salvation is never validated by what a person did, but by what he does. Do you understand that? And the key here, parents, is repetition. Even after their first profession, their second profession, and maybe their third. It doesn't always happen that way. But it's repetition. Keep examining 
keep explaining, keep developing their understanding. The only way they can ultimately know with certainty that they are born again is when the indwelling spirit of God affirms them on the basis of their fruits of godliness. Now, please understand. Faith in Christ is not merely some blind trust where you just understand a few sparse basics and you leap into this relationship with Jesus. Faith requires much more than that. Genuine saving faith must always include an objective understanding of the gospel. That's why I'm emphasizing this so much. Now, some will argue, well, no, no, wait a minute, Pastor. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18, three through four, that um, children are that we must come like children to him, that we must come in a childlike trust and all sinners must become like little children in order to be saved. So we don't need to know all of that stuff. Well, beloved, that is a gross misunderstanding of that text. Jesus was not emphasizing the issue of ignorance, that you can come to Christ in ignorance as a little child. His emphasis was on the fact that we need to come like a helpless, dependent little child. That was the issue. We need to come like an infant when we come to Christ who has absolutely no personal achievements, who has nothing upon which to merit salvation. That's the issue, not one of ignorance. Now, to be sure... Many of the theological concepts will be over a child's head, but by the power of the Spirit of God, we know that He has promised to save them through the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So child evangelism begins by preparing the soil through godly examination and instruction. Secondly, by sowing the seed of the gospel where we emphasize the crucial doctrines of the gospel, and then finally, by trusting God for the harvest. And I'll close with these thoughts. Beloved, here's where we, we must understand the priority and the power of prayer. When a farmer prepares the soil to receive the seeds, as we look around here and the crops all around us, he sows the seed, but after he does that, what else can he do? He has to trust God for that seed to germinate. You know, he can't do some incantation, some dance. He can't do anything mystical. He has to trust God to do what only the Creator can do. He has to trust God to prevent the rains from coming and destroying the crop. He has to trust God for the sun to shine. He has to trust God to prevent fire and hail and, and, and storms and frost and floods and pestilence from robbing him of the harvest. All he can do at that point is pray. And beloved, this is what we must do for our children. And I ask you, do you pray for your children's salvation? And when I say pray, I mean really pray. In 1 Peter 4, 7, we read, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter is saying there, Do you have a watchful, Vigilant eye toward the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ that translates into a personal pursuit of holiness, that translates into an ardent zeal for evangelism, that translates into a love to commune with God in prayer and to pray on behalf of others so that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Is that your attitude? This is why we are encourage you to, you to participate in our biannual Operation Children's Hope prayer vigil that you'll hear more about, that 24-hour season of fasting and prayer for the salvation and the sanctification of our children. For again, Jesus said in Mark 10:14, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And He is our example, as we read in Mark 135, where the scripture says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. 
And when we do that, we can be as the psalmist who said in Psalm 55:17, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray. And he didn't stop there. He says, and cry aloud. And he shall hear my voice. Beloved, beyond the formal seasons of prayer that we offer here at the church, may I encourage you, husbands and wives, grandparents, will you come up with specific times during the day or at least sometime during the week where you will come together and pray for the salvation and the sanctification of our children? Pray like the early church prayed when they came together. We've been studying this in Acts. They prayed for the glory of God to fill the earth. They came together corporately even and they prayed for sinners to be converted, for husbands and wives and children to come to Christ. They prayed for spiritual discernment. They prayed for power. They prayed that they would bear much fruit and they prayed for the Lord to hurry and return. And I say to you as your pastor, oh, would to God that each of us would take hold of the battering ram of prayer, that each of us would throw all of our weight into it. And that we would throw ourselves against the gates of heaven with a holy fervor and plead with God with a sacred violence for the glory of his name to save our children, to save our families. Imagine the blessings that would come from such persistence. Great Puritan Thomas Brooks said, God hears no more than the heart speaks. And if the heart be dumb... God will certainly be deaf. Beloved, pray for yourselves that you will prepare the soil of your child's heart through your godly example and instruction. Pray that you will sow the seed of gospel truth with all of its purity and precision. That God would be merciful upon your children and our children for His glory. That they would grow up to be great and valiant warriors of the faith. Slaves of righteousness and live to the glory of God and even the joy of their parents. For we read in Proverbs 10:1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. May the Spirit of God convict us all to these ends and be merciful on our children and save them every one. Let's pray together. Father, you've heard the desire of our heart. And I pray that by your grace, you would cause us to live consistently with these truths. And oh God, save our children. Save our youth. Save our husbands and our wives. Use us as instruments of righteousness to these ends. I ask in the precious name of Jesus and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.